Well, it is a true delight to be with you again. My name is Pastor Jeff Schultz, and I'm from North Olmsted Friends uh, Church on the west side. We're west siders where we come from. And let me just ask you, how many of you were here last week? Wow, that's, that's good news for me because, you know, as a, as a guest preacher, you always... You always wonder, and so you pick out your very best sermon and you preach it, but, but it's all downhill from here, so, uh, I, I'm, but I'm really delighted to be with you and thankful to uh, get to know you and just be a part of your sweet fellowship and the, the worship time, and, and uh, very excited about VBS this week and all the things that you're involved with and sharing the, the good news of God's Word. You know, one night, a wife was looking in, and she watched her husband. He was standing near the baby's crib looking down, and as she watched him, she noticed as he looked down at the sleeping infant, she saw on his face just this mixture of emotions. It was mixed with a a sense of doubt and disbelief, but also just amazement and wonder. And so as as he would stand back and look, he, he whispered to himself, it's amazing, it's amazing. And so finally the wife just came in and she was just really touched and her eyes just kind of welled up with tears as she kind of nuzzled alongside him and said, honey, a penny for your thoughts. Well, he stood back again and with a big smile, he said, honey, if you look really, really close, it's just amazing that they can put a crib together like this for (laughs) $79.99. This morning as we open God's word, I hope that we can see what's really important. I hope before we leave this place, we will have experienced God to such a depth and a degree that we will take away a word from him, that we won't miss what he wants us to see. Because I'm gonna tell you, in our country today, in our society today, in this room today, we need a word from the Lord. Let's turn to God's word, shall we? To Luke chapter 10, the gospel of Luke. I invite you to join me here as we read this together. We're talking about stories that, that Jesus told. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we'll begin. I'll invite you to stand with me as we read this word together. Hear God's word for us today. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, or as the New American Standard says, he, want, he wished to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man, 
If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. May God have his blessing to that word. You can be seated. An expert in religious law, a lawyer, comes to Jesus, and the idea is to test him, but also what we discover is that, in fact, he wants to know what Jesus thinks about eternal life. How do I, Jesus, make sure that I get to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? What are the requirements, Jesus, of making sure that I make it? Now, that's a question that many of us would love to ask. We want it just put very plainly. What do I have to do, Lord, to make it? Give it to me straight. Put it in plain language. I want to be able to check it off my list and get on with my life. And that's how this conversation starts out. He just wants to know, how do I make it to heaven? And so he asks Jesus, how do you inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, well... What does the law say? You're the expert on the law, and this expert, this lawyer says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The scripture says with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it right. You get an A for the day. Do that, and you'll live. And then the text says, and I think this is very interesting, It tells me everything about this story. It says in the New American Standard, which closely aligns with the Greek text, the man wishing to justify himself. And I want you to think about that phrase with me for just a moment, because I think that is a hidden clue to a lot of what this text means. This is an important understanding because a lot of us think that, how do I justify myself? So he asks Jesus this question. He says, well, who is my neighbor? How broad is that category? Who counts? Who do I have to love? In other words, here I am. I want to make sure that I make it to heaven. Who is it that I have to love like myself to make sure that I get there? How do I be good enough to make it to the heavenly city? Because I want to justify myself. Now, John Ortberg points out something that most of us probably reading this wouldn't realize at that time, but he he points out that there was a debate going on among the rabbis of that day. It's a debate that we need to be aware of. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 19, we read these words. It says, do not hate your brother in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so the debate was this, the rabbis looked at this text and they said, well, if we want to know who our neighbor is, well, it's obvious our brother is our neighbor. It's in the text. Our people are our neighbor. If, if you belong, if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jew, you're in, you're a neighbor. We have to, to, to consider that. But the question, the debate of the day was, what about converts? What about people who become Jewish? They they join the ranks, they believe in God, they become one of us, they join the tribe. Are they our neighbor too? That was the debate. Some said yes, 
Others said no. But there was universal agreement among the Jews this about this. Gentiles aren't our neighbors. Pagans aren't our neighbors. People of different races, they don't count. That was, the de- that was not the debate of the day. Everybody agreed who didn't count as a neighbor. So this man wants to know, how narrowly can I define neighbor so I can make sure that I do it right, get to heaven, and justify myself? And so Jesus looks at him, and he begins to tell a story, a story that you all know. And he does it in a rather classical way, I think you would agree. There's a certain kind of structure that follows in this story that that is known as basically the rule of three. You think about this, so many stories are built this way, where you might have one character, the main character, and he does something. It might be random. But then you have another character come along, and he does something as well, but it's the same thing that the first character did. And so now you have an expectation. You follow me? You understand, well, this is what the, what's expected. But then comes the third character, and it's a surprise. They do something different. It's the punchline. Have you noticed how many of our jokes follow that line of thinking? For example, a, a priest, a Pentecostal preacher, and a Jewish rabbi would get together for coffee every once in a while to talk ministry. Well, one day, one of them happened to make the comment, you know, it's a, an easy thing to preach people, preach to people, but I bet it's really hard to preach to bears. Well, these guys began to talk about it, and egos kind of got in the way, and they began to really sense, hey, you know what, I could preach to a bear, I could convert a bear if I got the chance. And so they decided, let's go preach to bears, and they said, we'll get together next week and see how things went. Well, seven days later, they're all together to discuss their experiences. You have Father Flannery, Father Flannery's uh, rather erudite and He's there with an arm, Uh, his arm is in the sling, and he's got a couple of bandages on him, and he says, you know, guys, I I went into the woods to find me a bear, and when I found me a bear, I I began to read him the church's catechism, and that bear wanted nothing to do with what I was reading to him, and he just came up and began to slap me around. Well, I quickly grabbed my holy water, and I sprinkled the bear, and suddenly he became as gentle as a lamb. Next week, the bishop is coming, and we're going to confirm him and give him First Communion. What that Reverend Billy Bob said, you know, Billy Bob, he's the Pentecostal preacher, and he's on a few crutches, he's got crutches, and he's got a few more bandages, and in his best fire and brimstone oratory, he said, well, I got to tell you, brothers, you know, we don't sprinkle where I come from. I went, and I went in and found me my bear, and I began to, 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 to read God's holy word to the bear. But that bear wanted nothing to do with me. So I took hold of him and we began to wrestle. And we wrestled up one hill. And we wrestled down another. And we wrestled up one hill and down another until we got into a creek. And I dunked that bear and I baptized his hairy soul. And just like you said, he became as gentle as a lamb. And we spent the rest of the day praising Jesus. Amen. (laughs) With that, they they both looked down at the, the rabbi. 
Now, the rabbi was in a hospital bed, and I'm telling you, he was hurting. He was in a full body cast. He was in traction, IVs and monitors all hooked up to this poor guy. He was bruised and battered from head to toe. And the rabbi looks up and weakly says, you know, looking back on it, circumcision may not have been the best way to start. <laughs> Now, that's the rule of three. And, and Jesus tells the story this way, doesn't he? He says, a man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and robbers come, attack him, they strip him, they beat him, and they leave him there half dead. The Bible says that Jesus tells us a priest came by, and when he saw the man in the ditch, in the condition, he steered his beast around and continued on his way. A little later, a Levite, a member of the establishment, a part of the temple in cahoots with the government, well, he comes by. And he does the same thing. He goes around. He ignores. So the pattern is established. The expectation is made. But then, Jesus says, a Samaritan walks by, now, Jesus is speaking to Jews. He knows how they feel about Samaritans. I don't have time this morning to go through that full history, but suffice it to say there was a lot of bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. They were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds, religious compromisers. They wanted nothing to do with Samaritans, and so they were a despised and hated people. Jews wanted nothing to do with them if they could help it. But no matter... Jesus says in telling this story that a Samaritan, and he has a heart of compassion, begins to walk by, and when he sees this battered, bruised man on the side of the road, he picks him up and he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to the nearest inn. He nurses him through the night and makes provision for him as long as is necessary. This, of course, is where we get that term. You know it well. A good Samaritan. And we think that we understand the, the point of the story. We've heard this many times, and I'm sure the lawyer realized the implications too. Jesus wants us to realize that we have a responsibility to all our fellow human beings, and no one is outside of being called our neighbor. Boy, do we need to hear this word today. It doesn't matter whether we know the other person or whether he's of our race or style of life is like our own. It doesn't matter whether that a person appeals to us or repulses us. Eternal life, Jesus says, has something to do with the way we show compassion to others, with the way that we're willing to love others. And we understand the point. That's the takeaway. We get it. I hope we take it to heart. Boy, do we need to take it to heart today. But as I've reflected on this story, there's something that's occurred to me over the years. Because I found myself thinking about something else. Usually, when we look at this story, we talk about the compassion of the Samaritan, and we should. Or often you'll hear pastors preach on the, the failure of the priest and the false religiosity of the Levites who pass by. 
But have you ever stopped to think about the battered, bruised man in the ditch? Have you ever thought about his perspective of what it was like to be helped by a Samaritan? Oh, God, why a Samaritan? Now, in the original text, Jesus doesn't come out and tell us that he is a Jew, but it's understood, it's, it's certain. A Jew, a, a, a Jew was in trouble, and he's ignored by his fellow Jews. They were his neighbor. By any definition in the scripture you could find, they were neighbors, and they were supposed to be neighborly. But then we see this Samaritan, and he comes and helps him. Now, how did he feel about that. My goodness, he was probably a man who had grown up and never spoken to a Samaritan, never touched a Samaritan, never had any association with one. And he hoped it would stay that way. But now, at his greatest moment of need, where he is standing between the, 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 the precipice of life and death, a Samaritan is one who stops it's a Samaritan who cleans his wounds and nurses him. It's a Samaritan who puts him on his donkey. It's a Samaritan who takes him to the inn and, 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 and addresses every moan, every cry. It's a Samaritan who sleeps by his bed that night on the floor as he waits for morning, moaning and groaning, addressing every need. It's a Samaritan that he hears in the morning. Say, I'll pay whatever it costs. Here, take this. I'll be back. It's a Samaritan. How, how did that come across to this man? How did he feel about that? And, and most of us will think, well, you know, that's easy. Wasn't he just glad to be alive? Wasn't he just happy to be alive? But listen, I've been a pastor a long time. And I've discovered some things in this journey of ministry. I realized something over these many years. Let me give you an example. A marriage is in obvious trouble. A couple is headed toward divorce. Their children are hurting. Everyone sees it. Their friends are saying, you need to get some help. Their parents are coming in. You need to go get some counseling. And one or the other says what? No, I'd rather die. An alcoholic, he's addicted, his life is on the edge, his wife is crying out to him, you've got to get some help, you're going to lose us, you're going to lose your children, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your life, would you just get some help? No, I'd rather die than go to AA, I'd rather die than go and get some help. Some of us would rather die than get help by some people. You know, when I was in college, my, I just graduated high school. During the summers, I worked for Mary, uh, in Marysville at the Honda manufacturing plant. They make the cords and civics. It was 1988, hottest summer on record. It was a rude introduction to the work world as I went in there into that plant and was put into the weld shop. Hottest summer ever. 
I was put on a platform about a story high. I was working second shift. That meant that the plant warmed up all day and it was hottest at night. And so I worked from 3.30 to midnight, one o'clock, whatever it was. And I was put in that weld shop and my process was this. I took a rubber mallet and I, they would give us just the basic frame of the car and it would come down the line. And my job was to start at the, at the front and work my way around it, uh, pounding on certain parts of the metal to make it the metal flush to, for the robots to be able to do their spot welding. Now, I had always learned in school that robots were supposed to make our jobs easier. But I was so low on the totem pole, I was working to make the robot's job easier. That's how it was. And I got to tell you, I wasn't very good at it. I was miserable and I was slow. There was another guy next to me, and I got to tell you about this guy. He was about, he was mid-20s, so he's a little older than me. Long, flowing hair. Wore his shirt wide open so you could see his tattoos on his chest, earring on his, uh, you know, earring and nose ring. Looked a lot different than I did. I'll just say that. He talked a lot different too. His conversation was laced with a lot of colorful language. He often would uh, talk about the sexual conquests of the weekend before. Let's just suffice to say that there were more than once I just said, Lord, why did you have to put me next to him? I mean, here's this guy who's headed towards seminary and going to go off to preach. I don't, I don't want to be next to this guy. Boy, did God teach me a lesson because over time, I realized every time I get behind, guess who would step up and pick up a hammer and help me again and again and again. You know, God has a sense of humor. I hated having him help me. Do you have anybody in your life like that? God has a terrific, amazing sense of humor because when we retain any kind of our prejudices and preferences of people who are different than us, God just has a way of making us humble, doesn't he? The truth is the Good Samaritan is bad news to our pride and our prejudices and our preferences. Sometimes God gives us just what we need, even though it comes in a package in a way that we would have never ordered. My friends, our nation needs to learn this today. When are we going to stop seeing race and color? When are we going to stop seeing all of those things and instead realize that everyone we see is someone's daughter, is someone's son? Someone, every person we ever see is, is a person with, with needs and, and, and mistakes and, and, and weaknesses and strengths. Every person we see is a valuable, very precious child of the living God. We need a, a spirit, a new spirit in our nation to understand this truth. And it comes right from the chapter of Luke chapter 10. And so we better learn this lesson in our country you know, it's fascinating to me that when this story is over, Jesus asks the lawyer a question. Up until now, it's been the lawyer asking most of the questions. But Jesus says this, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who got beat up by the, and robbed by the bandits? And it's fascinating because what's the one word the lawyer refuses to use? 
Obviously, he says, it's the one who showed mercy. But never will he say, it was the Samaritan. My goodness, he still hasn't learned the lesson. But we better learn the lesson because sometimes we are going to be helped by someone we wouldn't expect. But I'm also going to tell you this, it's deeper than that. It's more than that. Remember, this man wants to justify himself. He wants to make it to heaven on his own. But you and I have good reason to understand this story. In in John chapter 8, a a group of Jews are picking an argument with Jesus. They're going to lay it out. They're going to insult him the best way they know how. And so this is what they say to Jesus. Listen to these words. They say, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Ooh, they gave him the burn. But look at Jesus' response. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now, notice he says, I don't have a demon, but he said nothing about not being a Samaritan. He had no problem identifying himself with them. He doesn't seem to be bothered by that notion whatsoever. And if you think about it, oh, we better learn this lesson. You see, the truth is, everyone in this room is walking down the road. Everyone in this room is on a perilous journey from the, from the day we are born to the day that we die. It's a, a road. Beauty, perhaps, in many ways, but a road of great peril. In fact, it is so perilous that not a one of us are going to make it without finding that we end up robbed and bruised and battered because the Bible's clear and your life can tell this story too. Satan comes to kill and steal and destroy And we know the den they live in. It's a den of wickedness and sin. And we know how it manifests itself through greed and lust and anger and fear and guilt. And it takes its toll and it batters us, it it bruises us, it robs us, and it leaves us half dead. And friends, if we don't get help, we're going to die And the story says, religion walks by. And you think it can help. But it doesn't. It never does. Relations walk by. Family walks by. You think, well, maybe they can help. But they can't. And we think, what else is there? We... We need some help. We have nothing. And then all of a sudden, we hear the footsteps of a stranger, and we suddenly look up, and we see his face, and we recognize him because he's carrying a cross. He's a Samaritan. He's carrying a cross because the Bible says, cursed is one who hangs on a tree. And then you think of the scriptures. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows. He he was acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not as one from whom men hide their faces. We wouldn't want to see him. We wouldn't want to touch him. But he comes. 
and with a heart of compassion. He begins to bind our wounds and put oil. He begins to lift us up and he puts us on the donkey. And he takes us to the end and in my mind I see the church as that safe place. In my mind the innkeeper is that Holy Spirit. And he says, I paid the price. I'm willing to pay the entire price. And by the way, I'm coming back. Now let me ask you something. Could the man lying there in the ditch said, have said no? I'm going to wait for a better offer. He could have. He could have said, well, I, I don't want help from someone like you. And he would have died. Let me ask you, friend. Have you accepted his offer? It may not have come like you expected it. It may not be exactly what you wanted. You wanted so badly to justify yourself. And Jesus says you can't pay your way. All that you had is gone. But I'll give you myself. If you put your trust in me, let me hold you. I'm coming back. The man could have refused. He could have waited for a better offer. But listen, he let the Samaritan give him life. And Jesus says to this lawyer, you go and do the same. I want to ask you this morning, sometimes, sometimes we think we'd rather die in our lostness than humble ourselves to receive Christ's gift, but he won't let us pay our way. Could it be that Jesus was telling him, I am the good Samaritan, and if you want to make it to the heavenly city, if you really want eternal life, you need some help. You need me because nobody can justify themselves. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you that your word is so clear and that again and again we see the story of grace and the gospel of mercy and compassion worked out. So many in this room have received that grace from the good Samaritan. Lord, I pray for that person this morning who's struggling who is determined, I'm going to wait for a better offer. I pray that, Lord, they would be able to see that, Lord, the best offer that's ever come comes through Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you would destroy in the process our wickedness of racism and putting up barriers, Lord, and stereotypes that, Lord, uh, keep us from experiencing the full grace that you have for your church. Lord, work in us. May we be completely yours. Thank you, Lord, that you're coming back. We pray these things in your name. Amen.